So, people of God in Christ, it would be nice to think that God gives invitations, but He doesn't. An invitation is, is what we as creatures are looking for. First of all, from other creatures. Uh, invite me to your party or to have dinner at your house, and I can't help but be pleased. It's nice to be invited. And part of the niceness uh, of an invitation is that I, I can say yes or I can say no. Of course, if I say no, I, I need to explain, right? Uh, I need to say, thank you for the invitation. Very nice of you to think of me. Um, I really appreciate being thought of, um, but um, I have other uh, commitments elsewhere. Invitations are the stuff of human relationships. But unfortunately, the idea of an invitation gets projected upon the relationship between God and man. There is nowhere in Scripture where we hear God inviting people to do something, to be something, or to go somewhere. God does not invite. I think that's a very important truth and clarification to issue in our day, but probably has been in every day throughout the history of the world. Granted, we want to think of God as the God who invites us, but in this respect, God is quite impolite. Have you ever stopped to think that God is really, in this respect, not very nice? But neither is God interested in being nice. He, he does not say, please. He does not relate to us in that way. We teach our children to say, please. But how odd that we would expect God to say, please. And what does it mean anymore to say, please? Uh, uh, does it mean it would please me if, uh, if you would do this or that? Or does it mean if it would please you, uh, I would like you to do this or that? I, I, I wonder if you've ever stopped to think about what does it really mean to say, please? Saying please might just be a word, a rule that we follow and that we teach our children. And, and so saying please can be no different than saying geez when we are having our picture taken. So when we read Mark's account of, of Jesus calling his disciples, we need to ask, is Jesus inviting them to be his disciples? It's an important question. When Jesus said, come, follow me, was he inviting, or dare we say, commanding? Imagine having a party at your house, and instead of sending out invitations, uh, saying, please come, instead you sent out commands. Come, I expect you to be here. You would probably get turned down, even if you were ser serving prime rib. So we really do need to ask, is, is Jesus inviting? And with the passage before us this evening, is Jesus inviting Matthew to follow him? And just to clarify, Levi is the Hebrew name equivalent to Matthew. Is Jesus inviting Matthew or is he commanding the relationship? Again, it's, it's an important question to ask and to answer according to the Word of God. So the first, the first point this evening is the calling of Matthew. 
Verse 13 reads, He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. Was it an invitation or a command? And I would argue and want to proclaim tonight that it was a command, which fits with what we have already heard from Mark. If we insist that it was an invitation, then it, it, it conflicts with what Mark has already told us and taught us about the divinity of Christ. Jesus has already been announced as the Son of God. We have already seen Jesus healing and casting out demons by way of His command. The coming of Christ was the coming of God to walk among His people. Now, here was Jesus as God walking among the people and seeing Matthew sitting in His tax booth, as Mark tells us. So Jesus says these words, Follow me. If he said to a demon, come out of him, so that the demon came out of him, then how should we hear this command given to Matthew? Anyone can say words like, follow me, but how are such words to be understood? As we hear these words from Jesus as a command, we even need to take it one step further. We need to hear the command of Jesus, follow me, In the same way that we hear Jesus say to a a sick person, be healed. Or to a a, a demon-possessed person, be free. In other words, the, the command itself accomplishes what is commanded. It's not an invitation and it's not even just an expression of what Jesus hoped would be. If he is God... And that's what Mark has been telling us, that Jesus is God. Then here is not an invitation, and here is not even a command. Here is even a decree of what will be hereever after for Matthew. John records in John 15 uh, that Jesus would later say, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should abide. So by this teaching from our Lord, we have the comfort and and the comfort of knowing that the call of Christ is a decree. The call of Christ is not uh, not for a one-time event. The call of Christ is not for an internship that eventually comes to an end. So if it were an invitation that we just accepted, how long might we continue to answer the call? as fickle sinners. We might answer the invitation for a time and, and then decide it's, it's time to go home now and leave off following Christ and go our own way again in unbelief and, and sin. But here's our assurance and comfort that the call of Christ is his decree. The call of Christ accomplishes that to which he calls, namely to follow him to be his disciple. But what if some do answer the call of Christ and then do fall away? If it's a decree, why 
do some fall away? We have examples of this too, of course, in the Gospels, and most notably Judas Iscariot. In John 6, we hear this report that uh, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So what does this do for our assurance and comfort? What if I fall away, even as I am currently following Christ? But the answer comes in the very next verse in John 6. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we believe and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So the first thing to ask is, am I following Christ even now? Not will I fall away later, but am I following Christ now? If we have answered the call of Christ, then we will know that there is nowhere else to go. To leave off following Christ is to leave off the one, as Peter says, who has eternal life for us. And then, of course, we must remember as much. We must meditate upon the gospel. We must daily confess our sins while claiming Christ as our own. In other words, if I am afraid of falling away, then I must stay close to Christ. Going back to John 15, This is even the context of Jesus saying, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you. At the very same time, Jesus was saying to his disciples, I appointed you, so abide in me. Abide in me. Abide in me. So how afraid are we really? That's the question. If it's really our concern, and it should be, but if it's really our concern that we might fall away, then Let us take steps to stay close and to keep following Christ. First, claim it. Claim that his call is his decree. And my answer is the result of his decree. Second, do it. Follow Christ. Paul wrote, if we walk by this or if we live by the Spirit, then let us let us. Keep in step with the Spirit. Let us walk by the Spirit. But the corollary is this. If we have come to follow Christ by His decree, then let us continue to follow Him by His decree. Each disciple of Christ must consider that perhaps there is no possibility of falling away from following Christ because perhaps we are not even following Christ now. So let us hear the call of Christ. Let us answer the call of Christ. Let us depend upon the call of Christ. And let us follow Christ. But another thing that will give us assurance and comfort is that it's exactly sinners like us that Jesus is willing to call. The second point is the calling of sinners. Matthew was a tax collector. He was a, a Jewish man who had gone over to the side of the Romans. He was, a, he was a traitor. In that day, there was no sinner more recognized as a sinner than a tax collector. So that as a tax collector, Matthew would have been considered the least likely candidate 
to be called by Christ to follow him. If we are looking for church members, uh, don't we go looking for the rich and famous? Wouldn't it be good for us in the ministry that we share here uh, if the mayor of Terre Haute uh, was a member here? Better yet, maybe the governor of the state was a member here. But that's not how Jesus operated. He called Matthew, the tax collector, the sinner, to be his disciple. We need to face up to it, that Jesus made quite a number of really bad decisions in his ministry. That's facetious, you know. Starting with calling fishermen to be his disciples. Uh, We saw this in in Mark chapter 1, that uh, Jesus called the brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John, uh, to be uh, his disciples. Now we hear that Jesus called Matthew, the tax collector, to be his disciple. Starting out bad, things, from one perspective, that of the world, things are only getting worse. But, But we are not meant to miss the point that Jesus is God, and that God is no respecter of persons, that, that His grace is not merited by anything found in the sinner. And the point is that you and I might be assured. The point is to confront the proud and to comfort the humble. I'm not worthy to be a follower of Jesus Christ and, and to be saved, says the sinner. And the answer must be, I am so very glad that you count yourself unworthy because it's, ex- it's exactly true. You are not worthy, and I am not worthy, just as Peter and Andrew, James and John were not worthy, just as Matthew, the tax collector, was certainly not worthy. In fact, being unworthy is exactly the point. And this is the point that our Lord was making by calling these men, by not paying attention to the popularity and prestige of man, but by calling even the least likely, the despised, to be one of his followers and to accomplish their discipleship by the power and authority of his command. Verse verse 15 records, as as he reclined at table in, in Matthew's own house, Many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. We tend to think of following Jesus as the thing that the twelve did. Granted, they had a very special relationship to Jesus. But the call to follow Jesus was certainly not limited to the twelve. And in fact, the call to follow Jesus was given to all sinners. And that's the point here, that that the call of Christ to follow him is the call to faith in him. And that the call to faith in him is issued to all sinners. But if issued to all, then certainly not just to those who needed a little help, not even to those who were mostly holy but needed Jesus to make up for the rest of holiness call of Jesus was the calling of sinners, whether the uneducated or those so utterly lost in sin, like Matthew, the tax collector. Consider that whenever the gospel is preached, so that the call of Christ to follow him is sounded, 
Some of those who hear are like the Pharisees in Jesus' day. Uh, What need do I have that Jesus would meet? He's a good example, but what better example than Moses? Uh, What better is Jesus than Abraham? What better is Jesus than King David? So the response to the call of Christ in that case is to say, okay, well, here's another good example to add to to my list. But others who hear the call to follow Christ know from the start that the comparison between them and him is deadly. It is devastating. It is the stuff of despair. And that's exactly the point, that as Jesus calls sinners to follow him, as Jesus spends time being willing to eat and drink with sinners, it's because he is exactly for them. And he is exactly what they need. The sermon was uh, meant to be preached uh, last Sunday afternoon. And uh, what a great passage it uh, would have been to preach along with the Lord's Supper, which we would have had in the morning. Uh, Mark 2.15 says, As they reclined at table in his house. Now this is Matthew's house. But as they reclined at, or as he reclined at table in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners were, were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, and uh, for there were many who followed him. Just to be clear, it wasn't the Lord's Supper. But it certainly is a picture of the same salvation that Jesus, though the sinless Son of God, though God himself in our own flesh, yet was sitting down to eat with sinners. And that's what happens in the Lord's Supper. Not to have our bellies filled, like at Matthew's table, but to have our souls filled. Jesus came to eat and drink with sinners, first at their tables, but ultimately so that they would be gathered at his table. So finally, the calling to joy. Once again, it starts with who Christ was as he came walking among the people and who he is today. Then, because of the divinity of Christ, we must hear his call, even as his his command and and decree. And this is good news because he didn't uh, look for those good enough or smart enough or worthy enough in any way to accept his invitation. He came to command his blessing. And that brings us the calling of joy. As the story continues uh, in verse 18, uh, the people came and and said to Jesus, "Why, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? It's interesting that it it just says the people came to ask this question. In in other places, uh, it's the Pharisees specifically who, we heard it in this passage as well, the Pharisees specifically who confronted Jesus and charged him with this or that and, and even with eating and drinking with sinners. But here it's the people, and, and it doesn't even say that they were upset with Jesus for eating and drinking with sinners, only that, that his disciples did not fast like the disciples of John and those of the Pharisees. But, but here was the answer that Jesus gave, and it, it, it brings us to 
the, the calling of joy. He says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. It's a little bit like thinking to go on a diet right before Thanksgiving, Christmas, and, and New Year's. Why would, you, why would you choose to do that? <laughs> but here Jesus even says, they cannot fast. He said, can the wedding guests fast? And he follows by saying outright, they cannot fast. Why can they not fast? Because of the joy of their salvation in him. So the better comparison to our own day is is the one that Jesus uses. Even today, when you go to a wedding, you don't go somber and declining to eat. I'm sorry, no baked ham for me. I'm fasting. No, instead you, you go joyfully. You go rejoicing, ready to eat and to celebrate. Jesus was with them. The bridegroom had come. It was not a time for somber fasting. The coming and the call of Christ were reasons for joy. And we need to do the same, to be the same. Not that there are no times for fasting, but overall the the call of Christ is the call to joy. This is what Paul is teaching In Philippians 3, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It might uh, might seem odd that uh, Paul writes finally when it's perfectly only halfway through his letter. Some scholars want to argue that he uh, thought he was at the end, but then decided to write more. But I think he meant to say that the joy of the believer in Christ is finally final. It's ours forever, because Christ is ours forever, and we are His. So when Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord, he is most certainly referring to Christ and calling us to rejoice in Christ. And then he writes, to write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. So he admits that he's he's already preached the the following things to them. But the church needs to hear it over and over because that is what will keep them safe. That is what will guard believers in Christ from growing discouraged and from falling away. And so Paul continues by warning the Philippians to watch out for the dogs. What does that have to do with joy? Well, he's referring to the to the false teachers who would corrupt the gospel and cast the believer back into despair and rob them of their joy in Christ. And coupled with the warning, Paul also recounts the the gospel of Jesus Christ, that there is a righteousness that is by faith. And this is one of the passages of Scripture clearly teaching the righteousness that, that that teaching that the righteousness that is by faith is by faith alone. Paul writes, I count everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God, 
Oh, the power of a preposition. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. There is an inherent joy in the Christian life. Jesus spoke of it when he said, As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. And the Apostle Paul spoke of this joy when he wrote, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. So if joy is lacking in us, granted it may be as we are in a time of suffering, granted it may be as we have fallen to sin once again, but it is finally a final joy that we have in Christ because He has come as God even in our own flesh, because He has called us with power and authority to be His disciples, because we have believed in Him, our sins are forgiven, because we share in His righteousness, and we have the promises of heaven. And even in this life, we have the promise that He who began a good work in us will bring it to completion at the day of Christ. When we take our eyes off of Christ, we, we lose our joy. When we fall to sin, we, we lag behind or even wander off from following Christ, and, and, and we lose our joy. But when we repent and come back to Christ, we can, we can regain our joy in Him. And when we spend time with Christ in word and in prayer, we keep our joy as we abide in Him, knowing that He abides in us. The bridegroom is with us. The feast is spread. Each and every day is a day of joy for the believer in Christ. And it's that joy, it's, it's this assurance and comfort that will prepare us to face temptation and to keep us from falling away. Guilt and shame only leave us vulnerable to more sin, to further sin, because we're looking at ourselves rather than at Christ. But when we look to Christ in faith, when we know and remember the gospel, we have that final joy that will keep us following Christ each day. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, sound forth your call within this congregation and command us to follow you. Only then will we follow, and not just for a day or a season, but even to the end, as we have the joy that only you give. In your name we pray, amen.